Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. One of the things um, which I'm a avowed lover of is cities. Um, little did I know just some 10 years ago that there actually was a term, it's called the, an urbanist. And uh, when, I, when I discovered this term, I said, that speaks to me. There's something, as far as I'm concerned, about the density of population, about residences being above shops, uh, about uh, historic road patterns that I just find incredibly comforting. Maybe it's because I was born in the second city of the United Kingdom. So you can imagine my shock and horror when I saw a book called The Suburb Reader by Andy Weiss and Becky Nicolaides, who have basically said that no, the suburbs literally have been the cradle of the American 20th century. At least that's my take on it anyway. So I thought, who are these imposters? Who are these people who are ripping up my notions of the, one of the temples of human civilization, the city, the polis? The attractive home of John and Margaret Bryant, the home they've always dreamed of, the happiest investment they have ever made. At last, the Bryants have all the space they need, big floor-to-ceiling closets for each member of the family, large, comfortable bedrooms. Zoned living areas, a feature in the plan of their home, assure convenience and privacy for various family activities. Distinctive architectural details create a lovely setting that enhance the pleasure of entertaining. Andy and Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. First off, why don't you tell me how you guys uh, know each other and why you decided to collaborate on The Suburb Reader. Uh, Becky, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. It's great to be here. Um, so Andy and I actually met in graduate school when we were both working on our PhDs at Columbia University. 
We both had our, as our advisor, Ken Jackson, who's sort of the godfather of suburban history. He wrote a really famous book called Crabgrass Frontier, which back in the mid 80s. So we both studied with Ken. And then we both, uh, as we were working on our dissertations, started sort of telling an alternate history of suburbia in a way that kind of diverged from the white middle class narrative of that history. I was working on blue collar suburbs and looking at them in L.A., and Andy was working on African-American suburbanization throughout the country. And so we had this kind of um, shared interest and, you know, just developed a friendship partly around that. And we lived in International House also at the same time when we were at Columbia and became friends and sort of, um, you know, intellectual colleagues as well. Uh, thank you. Uh, the that, that really does start to flesh out the, the, the bones of this. Um, Andy, what exactly is a suburb? I think everybody has an idea of what it is, but what is the definition of a suburb? I'm so glad you asked Andy that question, <laughs> not me. <laughs> I don't think there's a, clear, there's a clearly accepted, fully accepted definition of what, what the suburbs are. and People have debated that for, for a long time. Uh, I think in the suburb reader, we take we take the position that that the the process of suburbanization is th- this outward expansion of of metropolitan areas toward their toward their fringes. Uh, the suburbs are those communities that historically were produced through that process, and so they are you know they made the suburbs historical suburbs certainly include places that today are inside the political boundaries of a of a central city. Um, and they include, you know, places that are, that are at the far edges of metropolitan areas today. And that, you know, that pulls in a full sweep of, um, a, a full sweep of, uh, building types and densities and, uh, you know, and landscapes, uh, and, and populations. So the suburbs are, you know, are, are that, that expanding portion of, you know, in our case, uh, American cities. Um, but in a, in a world case, those expanding portions at the, at the edge of places outside the historic core. What I understand as being like really the the start of the suburbs as we understand them today is the 1920s and access to the car. Um, how wrong am I with that assumption, Becky? A little off <laughs> historically. I mean, we are trained historians, so we we, we push the timeline back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we can find really early evidence of suburbia. I mean, back in ancient times, um, the, scho- the scholars who've written about this, I think, see the roots actually in England, in, um, up in your neck of the woods, um, in the late 18th and, and not early 19th century, when the upper classes wanted to escape the ills of the city and move away from the congestion and the pollution and, you know, new factories that were getting built and remove themselves from that into a cleaner green space outside of the city. And some of that exodus was class-related, race-related, especially class, though, I think um, early on where there was a desire to kind of have distance between themselves and, you know, the, the lower classes of the time. And they began 
creating these communities in a kind of suburban ideal, you know, the beauty of nature and how that could be a, a healing space and a space where good Christian families could, could live and kind of be separated from, from this, the central city. Andy, I'm sure I'm missing a few things here. You no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so, but I, I, yeah, I would, I would just amplify that by suggesting that, it, 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 that at that point in time, I think a lot of scholars suggest that some of the elements of uh, a suburban ideal that we could still recognize today begin to, begin to take shape. Uh, and elements of suburban landscapes that we might still recognize today as playing really powerful roles begin to you know begin to take shape, you know, including you know whatever single family separated separated houses uh, in the middle of in the middle of yards uh, surrounded by you know by green foliage, in communities of of like minded or, or you know similarly situated people, um, commuting to and from you know to and from work uh, from the edge to the center. Uh, you know, are all kind of pieces of that landscape, which we begin to, you know, which which begin to come together in places like Clapham uh, or Regent's Park in in London. Uh, and then, you know, a set of ideas in that class of people begins to, you know, begins to emerge as well. But I, we're really interested in our research, really uh, focus on the development of alternative suburban ideals and the, you know, the multiplicity of different ideals in American and other suburban places. I would just add too that 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 ideal that's really starts in England migrates across the Atlantic to the United States by the mid 1800s. So by the 1850s, you see these same elite type of suburbs starting to take shape outside of New York City, um, some of the larger cities on the East Coast, kind of mimicking what's what was happening in the UK at that point. And then from there, it sort of starts out, uh, well, I'm kind of um, overgeneralizing a little, but it kind of starts out as an elite ideal and would gradually trickle down to a broader cross-section of Americans who would be able to move into these peripheral communities. I think it's interesting from a, from a British uh, perspective, um, some of the places which you which you identify as being uh, the suburbs of the day, which then have been subsumed by 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 the city, uh, somewhere like let's say Hampstead or like Kensington, etc. Um, in London, um, are always in the United Kingdom to the west of the of the very centre because it's prevailing wind patterns, isn't it? That because exactly what what you said, Becky, that the the uh, the upper the upper classes or the more wealthy uh, the factory owners wanted to build their homes away from the factories and the winds in the united kingdom pre- prevailingly go from west to east so they were away from the smog and the smell and whatever so invariably it's always the west sides of the central bits of uk cities which are always incredibly wealthy and those were the first suburbs but then with victorian ex- expansion of, of the cities then the, the cities kind of grew around them but those pockets of affluence are still there obviously what you guys have done is a whole load of work looking at uh, the role of the suburbs within american culture like like most great things they start off in england in britain and then they, they migrate over to your side of the atlantic so Let's stay. Uh, let's stay firmly uh, in North America now. So, um, where do we pick up the story of, of of the suburbs 
pre uh, the 20th century then let's go into this the realm of the motor car and how america then de de defines itself and divides itself by this new pattern of suburban living and working why don't you start becky yeah um so by the turn of the 20th century we start seeing uh streetcar suburbs that was a precursor to the automobile suburbs so la is a great example of this it's a city that I know best. It's where I live and I've studied it up and down and sideways and everything. And the the streetcars, which were the electric streetcars, which were the kind of prime mode of transportation around the turn of the 20th century, um, were a real impetus to suburban expansion. And that happens East Coast. It happens out here in the West. And it would drive a, an incredible amount of decentralization and um, decentralized development of housing along the streetcar lines. There was a famous study of Boston that traced this out in, in a really great way, and it showed how the streetcars really opened up the suburbs to a much broader class range of people. So you had more kind of almost working class people that can now buy a little little cottage along the streetcar line with their lace curtain and, you know, have that life on a kind of smaller scale, maybe a little cheaper scale, but, but have it nonetheless. So that, that was a really important phase of suburban development. And then, as you mentioned, of course, when the automobile um, comes into the picture by the early 20th century and through the 20s and 30s, the suburbs really take off. And what happens at that point is, whereas suburban development, it sort of um, followed the lines of the streetcar before, the automobile allowed for it to happen all over the place, that development. It allowed for infilling between those lines because now you didn't have to rely on the streetcar to get to your house. So development started spreading like throughout entire metro areas by that point, you know, some call them the automobile suburbs at that stage. And so you see uh, communities of, of bungalows and um, mail order housing and um, sort of a, a whole range of kind of uh, affordable housing as well as wealthy housing too um, at, the, at this period. Um, and it's kind of, it sort of um, takes off at a, at a greater magnitude by that point, but it still doesn't really hit peak until the next phase, which maybe I'll have Andy talk about after World War II, <laughs> unless uh, you have another question. Right oh, now. No, no. Well, I, I have a slight, a slight question, yeah. and, um, and maybe this goes to some of my innate prejudice um, about uh, the suburbs. Uh, but Andy, who exactly were these, who were, purchased and walked into these new suburbs so we're talking like the 1920s uh when the you know the suburban movement kind of gets rocket fueled by 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 developers and stuff so who were these uh, americans moving into these new homes becky's really emphasizing uh importantly the you know the role that technology and transportation you know is playing and, and the real estate developers and the, and the industry which you know it creates the the new suburbs but two other things are 
uh, at least two other important things are, are happening here. And, you know, one of those is that American cities at least are diversifying dramatically in the late 19th century. It's the, you know, it's the peak uh, era of the, you know, the so-called new immigration of European immigration to the United States. So central cities are becoming, you know, uh, hyper, hyper diverse, um, you know, with 75% of the you know, city populations being immigrants and their children. Uh, from all over Europe, especially, but but really from all over the world. So you've got this intense diversification of, of central cities, uh, which leads to, you know, uh, efforts to sort those cities out through, you know, not, not just choice, but through a, a whole range of uh, policies and plans uh, that, that will channel people into increasingly distinct and segregated portions of the of the city. So who moves into the new suburbs? Um, the new suburbs by the early 20th century are racially restricted. Uh, they're, they're restricted by design. The new developers by you know, 1910 or so almost everywhere in the country are writing race restrictive uh, covenants into the into the deeds. So in order to buy a piece of a piece of property uh, and build a home on it, you've got to, you know, you have to be a Caucasian. Uh, as defined by the time, and you know, there's a range of restrictions that restrict Jews, that restrict Asians, that restrict African Americans, and, and and others uh, from purchasing in those you know in those places. Um, some cities pick up racial zoning so that cities themselves uh, you know begin to uh, begin to use public authority, governmental authority to uh, to ratify those those developments so that the suburbs increasingly become and cities become increasingly segregated places. Uh, real estate developers refuse to, you know, refuse to um, to sell to, you know, to others or to rent uh, to rent to others. So, you know, we see the development of a of, of segregation in the housing market, you know, in ways that you know really continue uh, right on today. Redlining and and, and uh, lending discrimination. Those are but one form of the new suburbs, however, and I think it's it's also important to recognize that before before 1945, there was a there was a working class fringe of of American cities, um, a, a, a less regulated real estate market that focused on on blue collar people, on immigrants and their children, on African Americans, developers who uh, who subdivided pieces of property that might have been downwind from the prevailing winds, places that were less advantaged, that may be economically and environmentally disadvantaged. Uh, and therefore available to to wider you know, wider class of purchasers, and they uh, marketed those uh, in immigrant newspapers and labor newspapers, in African American newspapers, to to those families uh, to buy a piece of uh, buy a piece of land, get a home of your own, have a place to have chickens in a garden, a place where you know you'd be living in a built up community close to suburban work and suburban jobs. So before 1945. Uh, in contrast, I think what the stereotype is that the suburbs were, you know, this kind of homogenous elite and white space. The pre-1945 city has got a lot more diversity. Uh, Blue-collar families are more likely to own their homes than than middle-class families. Uh, they have better better repayment records when they borrow money. Uh, homeownership means something more to them than it does to uh, you know to white and middle-class families who are who are moving out into the suburbs. So. The suburbs are a diverse, are a really diverse place in the in the early part of the 20th century. But some of these trends towards segregation, planning, restriction uh, are gonna are gonna get jet fuel in the in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, which is gonna uh, which is gonna put a halt to a lot of that diversity uh, and and increasingly segregate uh, the suburbs through the middle part of the 20th century. 
And I think it's interesting just to note for our listeners um, on on the podcast and and if you're viewing this on on YouTube, uh, that um, obviously American Southern cities had historical segregated communities. But what happens in northern cities is this redlining process, isn't it? And where, where... it becomes this kind of sometimes a secret kind of covenant. But, you know, if you were black or if you were Latino or let's say Jewish, you just couldn't purchase a property or couldn't rent a property in a certain area. So American cities then become de facto segregated as opposed to historically. In what way does the motor car actually change the look and feel of streets and of home so we've we've got the fact that we have streetcar suburbanization then we have uh the motor car comes in but there's something about those suburban streets which just without even consciously expressing that difference they just feel very different so how becky how does the motor car come and actually change the layout of the road of the street yeah great great question um just to put it in context and to contrast with the streetcar suburbs, the the suburban communities, like I mentioned, hugged the streetcars in a sense. And then you'd often at the at the station, you'd often have like a little main street area where there might be shops and maybe an apartment over the shops, a little walkable like main street area, because everything had to be within walking distance of that station. Now when the automobile comes in, it really impacts things in a lot of different ways. At the street level, you start seeing, um, uh, you know, streets obviously built for the auto, the rise of curbs and sidewalks and driveways, the detached or attached garage would come later, but you see um, detached garages being a kind of um, design element now of, of a lot of suburban homes. So you have to have a place to put your car. Um, and then you also begin to see the rise of um, shopping areas that are a little more oriented to the car. So maybe the earliest strip shopping strips along the roads, um, these kind of horizontally spread out, like, you know, you've seen those, I mean, those sort of the 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 big boulevards with the shopping along them i mean i think that also was a function of the the proliferation of automobiles at that time and how that how that would change cities in a place like la you begin to see houses being built all over the place up along hillsides in crazy you know places where the obviously the streetcar wouldn't have gone before so it opens up a lot of new land to development it sort of puts everything um you know on on the market as a, as a place for possible development um and and in a place like los angeles the it kind of creates also new vectors of like of class and desirability of areas so that really elevated neighborhoods along the in the hills like the beverly hills and up with the views or over the beach those become like the most coveted areas and the the automobile like sort of enabled that to happen by really opening up lots of land to development and andy um 
as I've kind of well advertised here, I have a somewhat of a prejudice uh, against uh, the suburbs. I see it as somewhere where create where creativity and culture goes to die. Right. You're going to tell me I'm completely and utterly wrong. Um, how did this new urban phenomena or suburban uh, phenomena go to shape m- mid 20th century American culture? Well, I think one of the things that, that happens in the in the mid 20th century, you know, picks up on what uh, both of you have just have just said. The 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 automobile helps to shape a, a metropolitan area that that's increasingly functionally, uh, you know, is divided into functionally separate spaces that are distant from one another, not you know, not walkable. Uh, and so, you know, the change the change to the street is reflected, you know, in the change to the to the housing landscapes, and you know, to an extent, is reflected in the in the in the changes to the political culture. You have the you know the development of increasingly homogenous communities, uh, and especially after after World War II, you know, the federal housing or the federal government gets involved in a big way in subsidizing uh, housing and stabilizing the mortgage market and making it you know possible for people to buy houses. Um, that they couldn't have done before to, to if they're white, buy, if they were white, if they were white to buy a house, you know, at a rent at a rent at a rate that was lower than rent, right? So to make it cheaper to buy than to to rent. So you've got uh, you know, and to to make it easy for for veterans, you know, from their 16 million returning from from the war and their families, white veterans in particular, to buy uh, with no money down. You know, all you have to have is a job, and and you can get a you can get a home loan to buy uh, you know a home as long as it meets the the Veterans Administration or the Federal Housing Administration criteria. Um, and, uh, and, and so you get the, the development of communities in which the experience of those people, the ages of those people is, you know, is increasingly, is increasingly homogenous, um, similar class levels, similar income levels, similar, um, similar lived experiences, similar ages, uh, you know, folks who are in, uh, their early, early family building stages and early childbearing years in the midst of a baby boom. Uh, and so, you know, in the, mid 20th century, the 1940s and 50s suburbia, you have this, you know, uh, dramatic expansion of a, of a landscape that looks homogenous. It is homogenous. It's mass produced uh, on, you know, on standardized designs that are commonplace everywhere in the United States. And it's filled with folks who are uh, about as similar as they, you know, as they could be in so many demographic ways, while still being all individual and different, you know, and different people with different political, you know, uh, perspectives uh, and the like, um, but it opens up the suburbs for uh, in some particular ways, uh, and also uh, closes down the suburbs in, in some other ways. So if we talked about that more diverse, certainly ethnically diverse and class diverse suburbia of the pre World War II period, the post World War II period opens up home ownership for you know maybe a quarter of the population in the in the middle segment of the e- economy of the you know the economic demography of America. Uh, and huge numbers of those people are, are the children of immigrants. Uh, and those children of immigrants, of European immigrants who were in a indeterminate uh, uh, racial status in pre-World War II period, who were perceived as not quite white, uh, are become white in the, in the post-World War II period. And so, you know, the category of those people who are perceived as white and uh, being you know, having access to all of the fruits and benefits of the society expands at the same time as uh, the restrictions and the barriers and obstacles to African Americans, to Latinos, to Asian Americans are increasingly sharp and and strict. And so, the suburbia, you know, the suburbia of the post-war period helps to draw 
the color line in America much more firmly and to do it physically in space by producing a new metropolis, which is increasingly separated into those who are white and the places where they live, aka suburbia, uh, and the central cities, which are, which are more racially and ethnically diverse uh, and are perceived uh, increasingly as such. Uh, Becky, what Andy um, is, is, is kind of led on to was exactly where I was going to go with my, with my next question is, okay, so this is happening in, in the suburbs. So what then happens to the cities? When I think of the 1950s and the 60s in America, I think of uh, the Highway Act and, and I think of um, highways knocking down wonderful old urban neighborhoods, which invariably were, were poor and or immigrant um just american cities becoming disfigured uh by by these ribbons of tarmac because people in the suburbs wanted to drive into the cities to work and then get their hell hell back out so um so let's talk a little bit about what then happens to the cities because of the, the rise of the suburbs. And then um, obviously we've had a certain level of white flight. Uh, but then what happens in terms of crime and law and order? You know, what is left in the center of, of the city because of these, the new rise of the suburbs? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bubs. Yeah, and Andy, you could jump on too to this discussion. I know you've, uh, you know, you're very well versed on this too. I mean, so you're absolutely right that it, in some, on some level, it was a bit of a zero sum game in the mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, 70s, especially because this was the heyday of suburbia's racialized reality where it really had become a pretty, you know, lily white space, quite in contrast to how things had been before as Andy's described so well. So as, as the suburbs explode and they're spreading all over the place across North America, the cities are feeling the, they are, really feeling the the loss of of um of tax base they're hurt financially as people are are 
fleeing, as you describe, as you say, and they're, they're taking with them their, their tax money. Jobs are also leaving the central cities. Um, and, and there's quite a bit of imbalance that we begin to see happening between like the central cities and the suburbs. I mean, this is the era of, of what's kind of known as like the era of, of the urban crisis in the U.S. When, when central cities um, become poor, they become kind of decimated by the suburban exodus, the suburbs having grasped so much of um, the sort of resources of, of the metropolis. It sort of is the making of metropolitan inequality, in a sense, where so many of the resources are getting sort of shuffled out into suburban areas and creating that, that inequality. Um, and the cities suffered as a result. I mean, there was a lot of disinvestment in central cities. Some of them were going bankrupt. In New York, famously, in the 70s, they were really feeling the impacts of that exodus of people, brain power, jobs, tax base, all of that, which is becoming, you know, moving out in a sense. Now, not to jump ahead, but things change and, you know, things can reverse too. And they did. But at that point in time, I think it, it definitely, um, suburbanization was a, a very important cause of, of the making of really vast inequality within metro areas. Um, I, would, I would merely amplify that if I, if I could, just to, just to emphasize, you know, one critical piece here is just the money. The flows of the flows of capital that Becky's alluding to, the you know the flows of resources, uh, are so extraordinarily imbalanced in this in this moment in time. Both the at the public sector, the tax dollars, but also you know the the private investment into suburbia, uh, shaped in large part by policy by redlining policies, which you know suggest where money should be invested and where or it's safe to invest it and where it's not safe to invest it. In other words, the city. Uh, you know, means that the the suburbs are new. The suburbs are experiences enormous flow of uh, of money, and the cities are uh, then engage in a scramble of policies, many of which you know are disastrous for for the city. They they the, and for the city populations, they you know build new urban you know interstate systems, freeway systems to try to you know capture those suburban those suburban workers and get them to come downtown, and they and they drive those you know six and seven and eight and. Uh, you know, now in Southern California, 20 lane freeways, you know, right through uh, existing communities, uh, typically communities of color, uh, working class communities. Uh, they engage in processes of urban redevelopment where they build, you know, new stadiums. They build, you know, Lincoln Center for the Arts, the United Nations, uh, and, build, and, you know, and, and new civic uh, centers like that are built on clearance sites where they have cleared the older 19th century city, you know, typically working class and communities. Um, and they increase hyper segregation and, uh, you know, disadvantage in a range of neighborhoods in the central city at the same time as, um, you know, those cities are experiencing this, this outflow of capital. Why, when I think of the American suburb being a Brit, um, I first become really aware of it in in the 1980s as as a teenager and i think of uh i think it was tiffany when she was singing i think i'm i'm alone now in those kind of shopping malls and it seemed to me like this was the most perfect distillation of modern america was the suburbs it's et you know where every kid had it had his bicycle had sleepovers and these are things which 
Britain was hardly a, a developing economy, but it was like, wow, look, look at this perfect uh, distillation of, of American culture. Why is it that great culture has not come out of the suburbs? When I think of music, invariably, I think of, of urban America. When I think of country music, the, the sound of the South, that is the, that's rural America. Other than maybe sitcoms and I, you know, I Love Lucy, I can't think of a great cultural totem which you can say that's come out of suburban America. I just think of Campbell's Soup uh, when, when I think of, of uh, suburban America. Yeah. Why is it? Yeah. Go. So two, two, two thoughts. I mean, one is well, like, what are the, what are the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you know, first thing I thought of was, well, look, Compton, right? Compton is a suburb of Los Angeles and is, a, you know, is a, is a center for, you know, for hip hop and, uh, and, 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 you know, worldwide uh, culture. And, um, and, you know, this phone is produced in Cupertino and Mountain View and, you know, in the Silicon Valley. This is a suburban, you know, this is a suburban product. And, you know, it's... But, but, isn't, but isn't that... But I, think that the, I think the example of Compton is a fair one. And I, and I keep on holding my hand up and saying I've taken a certain amount of prejudice to this. Because when I think of the suburbs, I think of white America. And you've made, and, but the pair of you made the point of saying that there was, uh, there was non-white suburbs, you know, directly in the pre-war period. Okay, they get squeezed out a little in the post-war period, but they were, they, they were them. So I take the point about Compton. But with the iPhone, I'm not going to take that point because that's because of Stanford. That's because of a, a knowledge base. And then people just could, they, they, they were too lazy just to move away when they, when they graduated from Stanford. <laughs> and that's the only, and that's the reason why you have uh, Cupertino, etc. Um, and, um, there has been definitely a move. Take the COVID pandemic out of it. That those knowledge-based uh, tech companies that their employees wanted. Then they saw the suburbs. They saw Cupertino, etc., and the peninsula has been stultifying. And then moved into San Francisco and jacked up all the prices there. So right because um, we need to start uh, uh, wrapping this up a little right but I love a little bit of it intellectual argy bargy as we say in England a little bit of fisticuffs answer my point right in, in a way which I'll see is acceptable on my podcast right why is it that great culture not industry because also we're talking about the phone was industry that great culture which we can say god damn it that's American and that's new that why hasn't it come out of the suburbs considering so much money so there was so much of a brain drain that went from the cities to there the cities managed to still uh, be be vital on a creative level if not economically and now have then roared back haven't they in the last 20 years uh, why didn't we get the equivalent for hip-hop from the suburbs whoever wants to answer please answer i think it's becky's turn <laughs> there, there, I think there's so much this first of all that's a great question and but I think and I think there's a lot to say about popular culture and suburbia from a lot of different angles um I so um it it Exeter Uni University of Exeter I might be messing mm -hmm. the name up on that there there is an amazing group of scholars there and in the UK who study 
the culture of suburbia in North America as well. And I think they would beg to differ with your take on that, Roy Bill. I, I think they have found a lot of evidence of, of writing and poetry and maybe not the hip hop, but they're, they, they have found evidence of a kind of vibrant culture that's come out of like the suburbs in mm -hmm. a sense, not only in the US, but in other areas of the world too. Here's the thing though, I think about culture and suburbia. You know, especially right after World War II, during that explosion, when the suburbs were were really all over the place, the suburbia really divided America culturally, I think, into two camps. The one camp that celebrated the suburbs and there were TV shows like Leave it to Beaver with the ideal family, the sitcoms that celebrated that way of life and showed this very sunny vision of American life and, um, you know, plenty and this comfortable life. And then there was this whole other group of people that were blasting the suburbs and criticizing them for conformity, for their shallowness, for, you know, the angst, the unhappiness. And that thread has, has carried forward quite a bit over time. Think about, um, uh, you know, Green Day, um, Jesus of Suburbia, all the cult, all of the music and, and, you know, this angry music that's, that sort of has, has been a product of suburbia, of people wanting to break out of the conformity and the sameness of these communities. It's been in, in some ways a really rich backdrop for a lot of cultural production, right? Where people can find their voice and their individuality. There's so many movies, like, you know, just a ton of them. There's a whole like subgenre of this kind of suburban film and TV and, and music that, that fall into that. So in some ways, maybe not in the way you're imagining, like suburbia has spawned culture in a sense, maybe a pissed off kind of culture, but it has created and generated cultural expression one way or the other. I, I take that point completely that the, the culture of suburbia is young adults want to get the hell out of there and stuff. Exactly. So, so um, I, 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 I take, I take that point. Um, my, my last question. Um, I hate shopping malls. I hate strip malls being British. I just, I, I find them terrible and I don't see why a key feature should be a parking lot as you guys uh, would define it, you know, a, a, a car park, as we'd say in, in the United Kingdom. Um, in the next five years, I, I remember seeing a study, this was pre-COVID, so it's going to be accelerated now, no doubt. Um, they said that a quarter of all shopping malls were going to close in, in North America. A real glib question would be, is the, the fate of the shopping mall emblematic of the fate of the suburbs? Right. Very obviously, a quarter of all homes in suburbs are not going to become vacant in the, in the next five years. Be a, a, only a lunatic would say that. But what does the death or at least the, the, the necessary reinvention of the shopping mall tell us about suburban living? Whoever wants to answer. I'd love to jump in on this one. First of all, I think you're right that in some areas, the shopping mall is dying. We have a website called deadmalls.com um, in the U.S. that sort of document these. But I would also point out 
that, and this relates to how recent suburbia post-1980 has seen another resurgence of diversification. And I think this speaks to this whole controversy around suburbia that Donald Trump has raised in his discourse around this issue. But if you, let's take the shopping mall. If you take the shopping mall, we've seen a revival of this form in Asian suburbs. So the rise of the Asian mall, where they have infused incredible life into these spaces. They are super popular. I mean, before COVID, if you went to the, the shopping mall near where I live, which is a heavily Asian area, packed, packed all the time. You could not get a parking space in that parking lot. So I think with the infusion of new ethnic energy and you know, cultural proclivities towards shopping or whatever in a certain style that might be transplanted from Hong Kong or Asia. And, you know, it, it things are in flux and changing. And I think I don't see suburbs dying off or fading or decreasing anytime in the near future. I think of anything, the trend will continue toward their growth for better or worse. Um, but it's, and I think it is a reflection of how suburbia itself is becoming much more of a home for a broader cross-section of Americans. And that's getting reflected in things like the shopping mall. Uh, uh, there, there you have it, folks. Right. Uh, my my greatest wish is that the uh, the suburbs are banished to to history. Is not to come true anytime soon. The suburb reader is a landmark collection of the best works on the rise of this modern social phenomena. Um, just very quickly, how long did it take you to pull the book together, guys? Oh, we, we did a we did a first edition in 2006, which took us a couple of years, and then we did a second edition in 2016, which was another another couple of years with, you know, lots of conversations uh, in in between. So, um, in a couple of years in the in the making, but uh, uh, two careers uh, really in the in the shaping and forming. Again, thank you for coming on to the show. It's been utterly brilliant uh, talking to you, jousting with you just a little and whatever. And um, go, go read it. It's a great book. Thank you for coming on to uh, Mid-Atlantic and explaining the importance and the rise of the suburbs. Thank you so thank you. much. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.